So thank you, Jonathan. So good morning. Uh, good to see you here this morning. If you're at home, uh, I wish I could see you, but it's good to have you join with us. My name is Drew. I'm a pastor here at Redeemer. Uh, it's my joy to be able to be a part of this part of the service with you. I just want to say, I was sitting there on the front row thinking, you know, as Patrick and Molly are traveling, they've been away this week, and uh, I'm so grateful for Ethan and Hannah and all of those that are up here. I just want to say, we're a small church in a small town in the middle of Florida, but the Lord has amassed an incredible amount of just talent here. Uh, and I just was struck by that, uh, whether it's whether it's just a stable of really good preachers. I feel like we have a lot of guys that are really good preachers where Patrick and Molly can go away and Ethan can step in and the music can be that good. The men that lead us are incredibly talented, godly men. I'm just so grateful. So I just wanted to say that publicly. Just, you know, I think, I think in many ways God's using this church to do bigger things than the actual size of the church and the size of the place that we're in. And I, I just want to give the Lord praise for that. So... We're in the middle of a series uh, that we've been doing this summer, uh, and we're going to continue pretty much through the rest of the month talking about crucial spiritual habits, because in my notes it says, because we're coming out of a time of incredible disruption, although this morning it feels like we're kind of right back in it a little bit, doesn't it? Uh, we're, we're still making our way through, let's put it that way, over the last 18 months or so, a time of incredible disruption, and one of the one of the parts of the fallout of all of that has been that our rhythms and routines have been significantly affected. And so we thought it would be good to take some time to talk about some of the, just the core things that Christians do, the core practices. And this morning, we want to talk about friendship. Specifically, words with friends. You'll see that's the title of the sermon, words with friends. Now, that is a nod to the popular game, or it used to be popular, I don't, I don't even know if it is anymore, that you could play on your phone with people. Uh, but it is also a bit cheeky, too, going after how we are learning and we're, we're leaning unsuccessfully on the technology that's available to us for friendship and it's only making real friendship harder. So we wanna talk a little bit about that this morning. Now, if you think of some of the most popular television shows over the last 25 years or so, friendship is a huge theme. It's the same in the movies that we love, but let's just think about the shows. In 1995, of course, it was the show Friends. I have my Friends socks on this morning. I'm all ready for this sermon on friendship, dressed up in battle gear. Of course, I grew up, that was when uh, Ashley and I were kind of going off to college and, and growing into young adulthood. We grew up with, with those characters and friends. In 2005, just a decade later, it was How I Met Your Mother. In 2015, it was my personal favorite, The Big Bang Theory. And so you have, this, you have these series of very popular shows that really centered around a group of friends. And our love for these shows, I think, suggests that we know, some parts of it, we know that the joy and laughter and all of the best parts of life come from having a group of close friends to go through life with. James Clear. Oh, uh, and Well, so much so, let me say before I get to him, so much so that if you look at those shows, really everything else is peripheral. You don't really even know what they really do with their lives except hang out together all the time. Because that's the crucial thing. That's the important thing. James Clear, who's written a book called Atomic Habits, he has a weekly email uh, that he sends every Thursday. And this past, this past Thursday, he referenced a New York Times article called The Power of Positive People, where this New York Times writer was claiming through some statistical data, you know, and, and otherwise research, he was claiming that the number one factor we're learning for personal mental health and longevity 
the number one factor in somebody's life is not their diet, not their exercise routine. And some of you will say, well, amen to that. It's not those things. You know what it is? The number one factor for personal, emotional, mental health, and longevity. Good friendships. C.S. Lewis was asked one time if, if he could give one piece of advice to, to young uh, people in the faith. And he said, this would be my one piece of advice. Do everything you can to live near your friends. And so we seem to know this intuitively, but I, I have a concern at the same time when it comes to those shows that I referenced. And not only do they show us that all the best parts of life come from having friends to walk through life with, the shows can also create an unrealistic expectation about friendship, that it's easy. That, and, and you can be left feeling like that everybody else must have this close-knit group of friends, and if you don't, then something's wrong with you, and that's just not the case. Hardly anybody experiences uh, what we all desire to experience in our relationships with one another. Friendship is hard. And I want to just say that as we talk about it this morning. And the other thing I need to say is I, I, you need to know that when, I, when, when we're preaching sermons, we're not preaching sermons from personal experience about all the things that we've figured out that you guys need to figure out. We're preaching to ourselves at the same time. I am, I am hard to be friends with. And so this morning, I'm, I'm nervous about like the hypocrisy. My kids called foul. Uh, this past week when I told you the story that sometimes I go to Publix and I pick the longest line, they're like, we don't believe that. That's a lie. You shouldn't lie to the people in church. We left and went on vacation and went to get groceries on our way to the mountains. And they said, we didn't, you, didn't pick the, you didn't pick the longest line. Then I was like, we're trying to get somewhere. It's not a rule, not every time. So I, I, I'm, worried about, I'm worried about them calling foul on me here too because the, the people closest to you know you best, and the people closest to me know that I'm not easy to be friends with. But, I, it's, but the good news is, is I'm not alone. You're not easy to be friends with either. <laughs> None of us are. None of us are. None of us are because of sin. And so I'm preaching to me too. I just want to, ca- I want to make that caveat, okay? I'm preaching about things that I want to see happen to me too, right? I'm repenting as we're, I'm repenting, and you're repenting as we talk about this together. So let's look at this. And here's the things I want to see from this passage that we're going to now open up together. I seem to find my way back to Ephesians chapter 4 quite a bit, uh, and I want to read it together. And as we read it, I want you to see uh, why it is that we talk about friendship being a habit, and then the mechanics of friendship as we find them here, and the power for it, because it's all here in this text. And so if you would follow along with me, we're going to read now. I'm sorry for that long introduction. I actually forgot that I had to read the text, so we're going to do that now. In Ephesians chapter 4, <clears throat> verses 17 through 20, and then down to 25, 32, and then into chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. So hear God's word as we read. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, Greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learn Christ. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin, and do not let let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, 
tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Don't you long for that? And so friendship, well, why call it a habit? And then what are the different parts of it? What are the mechanics of it? And then thirdly, where do we find the power for it? Well, let's talk first. Why would we include friendship in a series on habits? Well, remember the definition of spiritual habits we're using. A spiritual habit is something that you do by direct effort that will eventually enable you to do something you cannot currently do by direct effort. That's what a habit is. And people, when it comes to, I, I prefer the word friendship to the word community because community has become such a buzzword. And I don't think people know really what they mean by the word, but people talk about finding community. And when I hear people say that, it really bothers me. And it bothers me because you don't find community, you build it. It's not out there somewhere at Central Perk, you know, where you go and you, it's just waiting for you to show up so you can enjoy it too. You get friends by being a friend. And being a friend requires you to be intentional. You have to put the work in. And that's where the habit comes in. And it's because the momentum of sin, or I'm going to use the, the, the analogy, the, the gravity, the gravitational pull of sin is towards alienation. Now the text mentions this. If you look up in verses 17 and 18, he says, You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understandings, alienated from the life of God. And that's the phrase, if you want to underline that in your Bible and circle that word alienated. It's an important biblical word. Alienated from God, he says there. It's a good explanation of what we mean when we talk about sin. Sin is far more than just doing bad things. It's also the consequence of doing those bad things. Sin is both of those things. Sin is the actual doing of them. It's also having to live in the consequences of the doing of them. It's a, it's a state you live in. It's the state of being alienated. Alienated from God. A synonym that I would, would offer you is estranged from God. I really like that word because within that word is the key the key issue here is estranged. We use that word estranged to describe a relationship that was once close but is now no longer close. You were once known and loved, but now you're strangers to one another. The word is there in estranged. The intimacy and the familiarity that you once experienced is now gone. It's been replaced by anxiety and things are tense. And this is how the Bible describes our relationship with God. And we all experience it to one degree or another because of sin. But notice there in verse 18, it does not say we are just alienated from God. Look at the, the, look at the language. It's important. He says we are alienated from the life of God. And that phrase refers to the inner dynamic of the Trinity. Jonathan has already said God is Trinity. He is Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons. He is eternal friendship. And we are made in his image which means that we're made for friendship. And being alienated from God means that we now have to live in this world without the resources, without the stuff that we need to develop friendships with one another that image God properly. Because of sin, the gravity of relationships without God, this is the result of sin, the gravity, the gravitational pull 
of relationships without God is away from one another. People experiencing the gravity of their life, pulling them away from one another and not towards one another. You've experienced this, haven't you? Does that make sense? Do you know what I mean when I say that? And so we're being alienated from one another this way. Now, here's the thing that I want to say as an aside, but it really is a part, a part of the whole. And that is that if you notice how I titled this part of the sermon, Alienated by Sin and Technology, because the problem is, is that technology, and I know I'm on this hobby horse right now, uh, but technology is making this worse. I'm reading two books by a lady named Sherry Turkle. I'd highly recommend them both. The first one is called Alone Together. She wrote it in about 2010, which is amazing when you consider how prophetic she was. And it's all about how our phones are allowing us to substitute old ways of relating to one another with new ways of relating that are really just artificial. So we're texting and we're DMing instead of talking face-to-face. And those two things are not the same. We're posting on social media instead of, it's not the same as truly being known in relationship with someone. And the result being that we're now always connected to one another, but increasingly isolated at the same time. And this is our experience. We're always connected, but always isolated. And it's beginning to affect our in-person interactions. And so she wrote a second book as a follow-up. And the second book has the title Reclaiming Conversation. And it's really provocative in the title because the argument that she's making in the book is that uh, it's about the danger of allowing media to mediate our relationships because what what research and studies are showing is that we don't talk face-to-face with one another anymore. Younger generations especially are more comfortable online than in person. Ask teachers, they'll tell you. And the result is a loss of empathy and connection. And we all experience that. We all know that's, that's going on. And she traces it back to the technology in some pretty profound ways. And so we need to just be aware of these things. Now, I was looking back at an old set of notes, and I came across a sentence. <laughs> don't, don't judge me. But I came across a sentence that's like, ooh, that is good. And so I had to figure out where to put it in here. And here's the part where it comes in, because I, I, I'd forgotten. See, I forget the things I say. I know you forget the things I say. And, and I wrote in my notes at one point, most sin problems are no friend problems. Most sin problems are no friend problems. And you see here in verse 17, he says, give no opportunity to the devil. Now, if you take in context that phrase, giving opportunity to the devil is allowing yourself to be without people willing to speak the truth to you. It's allowing yourself to be alienated from the kind of community that you need. And you know, when lions attack the herd of buffalo, what's the first thing they do? They pick out the target, and then they work to isolate the target from the rest of the herd. They separate it from the rest of of its people, because they know if they can do that, it's done for. And so, we're talking about the habit of friendship, because it doesn't just happen. You have to be intentional, given... The sinful dynamics and now some of the cultural dynamics that we're up against. But secondly, if that is why we need this habit, what are the mechanics? What does a habit of friendship look like? And there is in this text, I think, and in friendship in general, a big idea and then a bunch of strategies. And you see the big idea. Let's talk about the big idea first very quickly. And the first big idea is that friendship is a construction site. Because the word build is the word that dominates the text in Ephesians 4. You read it over and over again as you go through this chapter. Paul's talking about you build, you build. Now, in friendship, you build. And that's a great 
that's a great metaphor for a lot of our relationships. It's a great metaphor for what you're doing in marriage. It's a great metaphor for what you're doing in parenting. It's a great metaphor for understanding the relationship that you have with your siblings. Brothers and sisters are building one another. The people in our lives are becoming the people we are building and making them to be. So that's the big idea. You're building. But what are some of the strategies? Well, if you're going to build, then you need to have all of these different parts. And I'm going to mention, now here I'm going to be a little bit longer. I'm going to mention a few. Four, in fact. And building, building in friendship and building friendships requires these four things. It requires vision and commitment and kindness and words. Vision, commitment, kindness, and words. And this is going to be the bulk of what we talk about this morning. They're all here in this text. So let's walk through it together. First, vision. Let's talk about vision. Because before you build a house, you have to draw up the blueprints. You have to have the plans. So you can make sure everything goes in the right place. Before you sit down to build a puzzle together, what's the first thing you do? You prop the box up on the side so you can see the picture of the whole. You need to see what the finished picture looks like because without the finished picture, you don't know how all the pieces fit together. You got to know what you're building. And that's true of our relationships with one another as well. So in verse 30, Paul says this, he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I'm going to circle back to this verse in just a few minutes, but let's get the general idea down here. Friendship in the context of sanctification, that's what we're talking about. That we are all becoming more than we currently are. God is taking us somewhere. He is building us out. He is making us more than we currently are. And we relate to one another as friends on the basis of what we're becoming, not what we are right now. That's what Paul's saying here. So to be a friend is to have a vision of the person someone will be one day when they arrive at the end of all things and stand before God. And then you commit yourself to being a part of God's working to bring all of that beauty and glory and potential out of them. That's what a friend is. We moved a couple of years ago, uh, well, it's been a number of years now, and at our previous house in uh, Garden Grove area, we had three beautiful 50-year-old oak trees. Now, what you need to know is by the time we moved out of that house, 10 years after we bought it or so, 13 years after we bought it, two of those three oak trees at different times ended up on top of the house, or actually through the house, because of hurricanes and other type things. But we had these beautiful trees. And uh, we, loved, we loved that little piece of property because of those trees. And every year, the acorns would start to fall. And, you know, it is pretty amazing when you think about it that those massive trees that fell on my house and fell through my house, they started out as tiny little acorns. Just a tiny little acorn. I mean, it's amazing to consider that everything needed to become a huge, beautiful tree was there in that tiny little acorn. But it's true. Now, here's what I want you to do. Look around. Look to your right and look to your left. Everywhere you look, every single person in this room is an acorn. The kids that you teach and kids worship when you go over there, thank you for doing that. The people you work with, the people in your neighborhood, your small group, there are spiritual acorns everywhere. And every human being that gets planted in the love and power of God and in the kindness of friendship, in them there is such beauty, there is such potential, there is such power. There is such stuff in there that is so beyond what they are right now. And the Holy Spirit 
we're told here is after that glory self, that potential. He's working to get people to their glory selves on the day of redemption. And a friend is just a person who comes alongside of him in his work of coming alongside of people to join him in that work. You've got to have vision. Secondly, you've got to have commitment. Now, this isn't explicit in Ephesians 4, but it's implied in all the language that Paul uses to describe relational maintenance. He tells the Ephesians to be gentle and patient with one another. Do you see that? To bear with each other, this is up at the beginning of chapter 4, to be tenderhearted and forgiving down in verses 31 and 32. And that's what I'm talking about. So reading this week, I was struck by Justin Whitmore Early's description of friendship as vulnerability across time. You'll see that I quoted that there for you in the second point here. Vulnerability across time, that's his definition. And I think that's good. The two together are what I mean by commitment. And vulnerability means that you just open your heart up to the people in your life. You choose to live with a broken heart when it comes to the way sin causes friction and alienation. You choose to grieve the hurt instead of to avenge it. And then ultimately to forgive for the sake of the relationship. Because the opposite of having a broken heart when it comes to the way sin can cause alienation is to become unbreakable. To lock your heart away from others so that they can't hurt you. Or because they've already hurt you. But C.S. Lewis is right to call it a casket of selfishness. Because to love is to be vulnerable. But probably the hardest part of love is not that initial step of vulnerability. It's to keep going with it. It's to keep up that vulnerability over time. To keep showing up with a tender heart despite all the pain that you feel. And to not allow the accumulated offenses and disappointments and letdowns to sour into bitterness and wrath and anger and slander. But instead to maintain your vulnerability across time. Proverbs 18.24 says, there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Friends stick. They refuse to give up on one another because friendship is covenantal. It's a calling. It's, it's Ruth saying to her mother-in-law, Naomi, immortal words that very few daughters-in-laws have ever had the courage to say to their mother-in-laws. When, when her husband died and Ruth said to her, go back to your father's house and go back and take care of yourself, and she said, she said, stop telling me to leave you. I'm not leaving you. I'm committed to you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. I'll go with you. That's a friend. Now, a piece of advice. This commitment piece, you need to make it official. That's why at Redeemer we take vows. When we, when we join in membership with one another, it's why we go slow with that. Because we want to make sure that we do it right. But you got to act on it. you got to express that commitment in some tangible way. You need to move nearer. You know, move to live near to, the, to your people. Do something. Join hands. Say, Let's, we're going to do this together because that commitment piece is, a, is an important part. Third, not only do you need vision and commitment, but you also need Kindness. And here we see in verses 31 and 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted and forgiving. So kindness is the opposite of all of those things. Verse 32 and verse 31, so they're opposites. Kindness is the opposite of bitterness. And bitterness there is the accumulated hurt that roots itself in your heart and then begins to affect every interaction with the person that has hurt you. And that bitterness begins to express itself in a number of ways. These build. The bitterness becomes wrath and anger. You get, you can be so, you know, there can be this accumulated pain that makes you red-faced when you just think about the other person. 
or clamor. And that word clamor, that's an interesting one. Do you know what the word, what, do you know what a huff is? What's a huff? Like, <laughs> that's one of my favorite things, right? That's one of my nonverbal cues, or I guess that's a verbal cue, but like, <laughs> or <clears throat> whatever that is. These grunts, it's an expression, right, of just how annoyed you are because it's there and you can't keep it to yourself. And so you don't necessarily form words, you just form sounds, because it just naturally comes out of you, it bubbles up. But the worst, the worst, more worse than anger, wrath, bitterness, clamor, the worst is when it talks about malice. He says, how does he put it there? He says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger be, be and slander be put away along with malice. He singles out malice because malice is when this, this antagonism settles into actual ill will where you start to begin to hope for this person who's hurt you to hurt and where you begin to actively work to make them feel as much pain as you can. And we do this in marriage. We do it in friendship. We do it in all kinds of things. Now, Ephesians 4.31 is the opposite of all of that. And it is describing what, what begins, it, well, verse 31 describes what naturally happens as we sin against one another and take advantage of one another. But Paul says, as he transitions to verse 32, he says, you've got to put all of that away. You, you, you have to not, you have to refuse to have anything to do with any of that kind of stuff. There's no place for that among people who claim to know the love of God for them in Christ. Instead, he says, you have to replace it with kindness. And I use the word kindness uh, on purpose. But by kindness, I don't mean just be nice. There's an artificial kindness that is not, that's just nice. But it really is just selfishness in disguise. True kindness is this, here's how I would define it. It's a supernatural ability to give people what they need and not what they want from you. And it is uniquely both strong and soft at the same time because it's rooted in a deep inner strength and security that is appropriately boundaried. And at the same time, deep humility and empathy. So a person who's thick-skinned but tender-hearted. And that's what I mean. you got to have kindness. But then lastly, because we need to keep moving. But also, you need to have words. And actually, there are two points of emphasis in Ephesians chapter 4. The two, words, the, two, the two things that keep coming up is you build, as I already said, but you build, and then he also talks about words. Over and over again, he's talking about building and words, building and words. So you build with words. So up in verse 12, pastors and teachers like me, we use words to equip saints for ministry. But guess what that ministry is you're being equipped for? It's a ministry of words. So he goes on in verse 14 that the consequence of a faithful pastor's ministry is a church of people who've been equipped to speak the truth and love to one another. And then he reiterates this in our particular text here in verse 30, where he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So let me just burst the bubble for you. Corrupting talk is not cuss words here. It could be, I suppose, but that's not what he's referring to. It refers to rot. That's the word. And so words have great power to strengthen and build or to discourage and weaken. Words, words that we give to one another can become like termites in the drywall that eat away at the support structures. And so we need good words. And good words are these three things. Good words are encouraging, they're fitting, and they're full of grace. You see all of that right there in that verse. So he's telling us, say things that are first encouraging, good for building up. 
Scott Saul has treated recently. He says, when you offer critique, do so gently. When you offer encouragement, do so fiercely. But don't get those two things mixed up. Don't fiercely critique and gently encourage. Because both critique and encouragement can build up, but it matters how you do each. Make sure your words are encouraging. Make sure they're fitting. In other words, show great care and wisdom. Let me say this. There's no default setting with honesty. You have to be following the Spirit. Because words are so powerful, you have to make sure. You have to make sure that you're being wise, that you're doing it in step with the Spirit. It has to be specific and well-timed and not too much and not too little and where possible face-to-face, not through text or on social media. And always, always encouraging, fitting, but always, always full of grace. What people need is grace, not shame. Grace isn't opposed to truth. Grace adorns truth. And so show great care. It says, verse 30, we grieve the Holy Spirit when we use words that discourage and destroy others. And I just, I think we should just stop and just beg God for forgiveness there. I mean, think about the weight of that. We grieve the Spirit when we use words that discourage and destroy others because the Spirit is the encourager. That's his job. It says there he seals us for the day of redemption. And here's what that means. I told you I would come back to this. It means if you've put your faith in Jesus and belong to God, then there's a day coming in the future when you will stand before God, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and all of the grime and the filth of your sin will fall off of you. And the scriptures say that to look at you on that day will be like trying to look at the sun. All of your sin will be forgiven. All of your brokenness will be healed. All of the disappointments and losses and sadnesses of your life will be made up for and you will be whole and you will be radiant and the real you will finally emerge. The acorn will have become an oak tree and it's the Holy Spirit's job to get us all to that day, to get us to our glory selves. But here's the thing, we can help him by offering commitment and kindness and encouraging words to one another and he loves it when we do that. Or we can work against him by selfishly tearing one another down, and that grieves him. So C.S. Lewis says this, there are no ordinary people. You've never, this is a famous passage, he says, you've never talked to a mere mortal. It's a serious thing to remember that the dullest and the most uninteresting person you talk to will one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All the day long we are in some degree helping one another to one of these two destinations. And it is in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. Those are powerful words. That's why they've endured. And so how? because we need to round to the finish here. Where can we find the strength to deal with one another in awe over our future glory? And we do it by focusing on where Paul takes us here at the end of chapter 4 and into chapter 5 by focusing on the phrase, as God in Christ. Do you see that? Chapter chapter 4, verse 32, as God in Christ. Forgiving one another, tenderhearted, being kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. 
And then he goes on in verse 1 of chapter 5, be imitators of Christ. And so all that I am to be and do for you is just the echo of all that God has done and is for me in Jesus. In other words, the power to be a friend comes from being befriended by God. Just a reminder, we didn't come from chaos. We didn't come forth from loneliness. We came from friendship, eternal friendship. And we are made in the image of the one who is Trinity, which means we're made for one another. But before we can be friends with one another, we must first learn to be friends with God because all other friendships flow from his life. And so that phrase we started with at the beginning, alienated from the life of God, describes a person who lacks the emotional resources for the kind of supernatural kindness that I've been trying to describe. They are ignorant of the love that exists between the persons of the Trinity. And so to be growing in our ability to offer vision and commitment and kindness and words to one another, we have to know the love of God, the love that's within the Godhead. We, we have to know it. And when I use the word know it, I don't mean we have to have a doctrine of it. I mean, we have to have firsthand experience. Because firsthand experience of God's love can do this. This is, the, this is the miracle of God's love. When you get firsthand experience of God's love, it can reverse the gravitational pull of your life and of your relationships. It can reverse the gravitational pull from pulling us away from one another, as sin does, to grace being something that pulls us towards one another. Isn't that great news? That's our hope. So we read in John together as a church this past week, and we're getting to the parts where Jesus talks about his deepest heart desire for us. In chapter 17, his last recorded prayer, he prayed for us often, he's praying for us in heaven, but the last prayer that we have of him praying for us went like this. He says, Father, I ask that just as you are in me and I am in you, that they may be in us also. <laughs> Do you hear that? Jesus wants for us firsthand experience with the life of God with the love between the persons of the Trinity. He wants us to know the same love from God and for God that was his. He longs for us to enjoy the same relationship with the other persons of the Trinity that gave shape and power to his life in ministry. And he prayed that prayer the night before his death upon the cross because on the cross, here's what happened. He suffered the rupture of that relationship. He himself became alienated from God, forsaken, estranged, taking upon himself our sin, so that he could offer to us his own righteousness and reconcile us to God. Now that's the good news of Christianity, right? You with me? That is our hope. And if you believe, if you believe, then you can have God as a friend. You can become familiar through firsthand experience with the life of God. And as you become familiar with his life, as you gather firsthand experience of his love, here's what it will do to you. It will make you supernaturally strong. The love of God in your heart can give you a fear of man immunity. It can inoculate you against fear of man. You won't need approval from others. You won't need them to be happy with you. And when you need people less, guess what? When you need people less, then you can love them more. You can give them what they need. You can say the hard things, even if you know it's going to upset them. Maybe even damage the relationship. You can risk it to do them good. But at the same time, as you gain firsthand experience of God's love, as God in Christ for you, it not only makes you supernaturally strong, but guess what? It also, at the same time, will make you supernaturally soft. Because an unbelieving heart is a hard heart, verse 18. 
but the love of God in your heart can make you tender-hearted because it's grace. He loves you because he loves you. What's the message of Christianity? God loves you not because you deserve it or have earned it. His love is grace. When you were at your very worst, he loved you best. When you were still a sinner, when you were wrong, he loved you. He came to you. And firsthand experience of that truth can't help but make you tenderhearted towards others, even as they continue to struggle and fail and maybe even sin against you. Which is why Ephesians 4 begins. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And I can say, listen, it's that combination of strength and softness, supernatural strength and supernatural softness in the same person that is spiritual dynamite. And it's particularly powerful to encounter a person like that because they are so much like our true friend, Jesus Christ. Do you remember what we sang just a minute ago? Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. His love can make you whole. Amen? Pray with me then. So, Father, we turn now. We turn now to that great love that you have for us in Jesus. And we confess the ways that we have looked to other loves. We've looked to other relationships. We've made idols out of friends, out of parents, out of children, out of whatever it might be. And those people have inevitably let us down and it has crushed our hearts. Uh, but it is because we refuse to come to you. You are the one, you are the only one who can say it and then back it up when you say, the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love will never depart from you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And those are the words our hearts so long to hear. So forgive us for turning other places into other things, into other people and asking for their love to save us. Turn us back now in these moments to you and to trusting in your love even as we gather around this table together this morning. And so we pray, Father, we believe, but increase our faith. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That's good. That's an RUF song, by the way. It was written by uh, some, some students and their leader at Belmont University. So a lot of the songs we sing are RUF songs. But, man, the key change got me. That was good. i got to be honest. So as you go now to take up your cross and follow Jesus, remember uh, that all he is doing is asking you to do what he has already done for you. And that's what these words of benediction remind us of, that we go now with the promise uh, that he is the friend who goes with us. And so receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you, give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.